I defend them. I protect them. I stick up for the people that cannot stick up for themselves. I say the things that people don't want to hear. I educate those who desire to learn. I scream to those who refuse to listen. Now is the time for change. The generations are awakening. These hearts and minds need healing. The veil of ignorance is depleting. It's time to wake up because if we don't question anything, everything stays the same. As an outspoken black woman, I'm often told you're being challenging. You're being harsh. You're being aggressive. <laughs> but I will not make myself smaller just for you to feel comfortable. Tolerate and ignore? I am docile no more. For we no longer act the way we are told. We are different now. Stronger now. And we need all people to do their part. In the classroom and on the subway. In the people's house and on the front line. In cyberspace and in the headlines. We are revolutionaries. Each of us vital to the transcendence of our suffering while shielding our people from chaos and mayhem. Reallocation, redistribution, reconciliation, mutual aid for our communities, eliminate hunger, poverty, homelessness, because these issues are inevitable. We want privilege for all or privilege for none. In a world where our lives aren't on the line daily, white privilege doesn't mean that you didn't struggle. It just means you didn't struggle more because of the color of your skin. To hell with the commercial mainstream. Stop using us as tokens of diversity. We're not an excuse for your liberal racism. Black people are not monolithic. We exist on a spectrum. We're talking about a post-racial society, not a population where race isn't seen, but one where it's respected and embraced instead of used to divide and inflict pain. A society that says, we see your color, we honor you, we acknowledge your pain, and we acknowledge your struggle. Far too many have come and gone at the hands of bigotry and hate. Let us mobilize and tell the world, Black youth matter. Black women matter. Black trans women matter. Black Lives Matter. Let's get to work. Asia S. Evans is a student affairs professional currently working in housing and residence life. She received her bachelor's degree in political science and sociology from UNC Greensboro. She also received her master's of education in student affairs administration and higher education from UNC Greensboro. Evans grounds her work in critical race theory, Black feminism, and Black identity development. She's passionate about education, advocacy, victim support, and student activism. Evans hopes to continue her work by strengthening marginalized voices within the Black community. This conversation is intended to reopen our minds to the possibilities of the future. This is Utopia. been like this person who as my mom would say like she always sticks her nose in other people's business right as I've gotten older and like really understood what that meant I've realized that I've always had this strong passion for advocacy for other folks right or or sticking up for people who you know couldn't stick up for themselves 
So even as a youngster, I was always someone that would see, you know, an issue going on with someone else and then just like jump in and try to defend them. I've always been someone who was super outgoing and sociable, but also someone who constantly used their voice, right? Constantly said things that either people didn't want to hear, people didn't want to think about, or just said the truth, right? And so as I've matured over the years, I've finally figured out a way to use that in my favor. So majoring in political science and sociology when I was an undergrad just made sense, right? Everyone told me I was going to be a great lawyer, I was going to go to law school and do this, that, and third, but it was not something that I wanted to do at that time. And so I was a very active student in undergrad. I was a part of various organizations ranging from student government to our conduct team. Um, also pledged a sorority in undergrad, Beta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated. And it was my mentors and advisors through those organizations that really further sparked my passion for education and student activism because they made sure that our voices were amplified and they empowered us and let us know that like they would not be here if it weren't for us. Um, if anyone can make change within you know, an institution of higher education is the students, right? Because they wouldn't exist without us. I noticed that all of those folks were in education, but they weren't teaching because I just thought that like, okay, like the only way you can be in education is if you teach. I don't want to teach. I'm not a teacher. Um, at least I don't think, right? Um, so I was like, how are you like in this field or whatever? And so they started talking about this thing called student affairs. And I'm like, well, what is that? So long story short, through there is how I got into the whole student affairs and higher ed realm of things. And my love and passion for working with students in, in various ways just strengthened throughout, you know, that journey and getting into grad school and my different assistantships. And so now I'm just in a place where I'm like, you know, I definitely need students to know how powerful their voices are. Um, and that's what's important to me. So I love working with students in that aspect. I love, you know, telling students like, hey, like, if you deem something as toxic or you think this is not working for the department or for staff or whatever the case might be, is like, I will always empower them to speak up. Now, I might tell y'all to do it a little more strategically <laughs> now, you know, definitely that. I definitely agree when you were saying, um, like, change has to come from the students. And I think it's maybe important to position ourselves for the listener and where we are in the time and so right now when we're recording this uh we're in the post 2020 election yesterday um yeah. joe biden and kamala harris gave their victory speech and we saw the highest voter turnout ever in the united states history uh, we saw joe biden and kamala harris have the largest vote at I mean, the most people voting for them ever for an American president. And a large portion of their votes was from Black women and from youth. Can you talk a little bit about the organization of that and why it is so important that we're teaching students to use their voice? There's so much rhetoric around being a student, right, means you're absorbing information, you're learning, you're doing all this. And it's kind of like there's this little docile type of sentiment around being a student, right? You're just doing everything that you're told, acting the way that you're told to be acting, like all this other stuff, right? When in reality, I think, and, and we're all in that space until 
something just like snaps and brings us out of it, right? And so for me, it was actually one of my first classes in college. I was taking an intro to African American Studies course because that's that is always the stereotypical course that wakes every black person up, right? <laughs> the professor, he told me to always question everything. But then I like really sat and like thought about it and I'm like, if we don't question anything, then like shit stays the same. <laughs> like, so from that moment on, I started questioning everything I ever learned. I started questioning people. And, you know, of course it comes with its cons, right? Me being a outspoken black woman, you know, it's oftentimes being, you know, taken as, oh, I'm being challenging or I might be incompetent, but, you know, whatever. But it was at that time where I'm like, okay, let me own, like, my curiosity. Let me own my, you know, inquisitiveness, if that's even a word. If we don't challenge things, systems don't change, right? We're seeing that displayed with the voter turnout for this election. I think also, too, people are, people are always, you know, harping on, what is it, Gen Z? about being, you know, extra, right? But those videos of, like, Gen Z on TikTok, like, coming for their families, coming for their parents, arguing with them about, you know, racist, sexist, homophobic things that they're saying, like, those are people that are now being able to vote, right? Or at least able to intern in offices, right, to call people or to mobilize people and things like that. So, like, the generations are becoming more and more active. And, and we love to see it. And I think another big thing, too, is that, and speaking as a Black woman, I'm like, you know, seeing that there are more white folks or people who don't look like me that are confident enough to say, like, no, Black Lives Matter. We need to defund the police. We need to do X, Y, and Z. And having them be able to, you know, be white allies and talk to their own communities about these things and and help break it down in a way that I probably cannot, right? Because I don't have that lens. It's super helpful and super impactful as well. And I think that also inflated the the turnout for this election. I I completely agree. And you touched on a, on a number of interesting topics there. But the first thing that came to my mind was I read a post a, a few days ago, and they were talking about how every white person who voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris know at least one other white person who voted for Donald Trump. And it is their responsibility to have these conversations. You know, it's it's the issue of racism is not going to be solved until all white people view it as their problem, you know. And so we all have to work actively. It's not enough to just not be racist. You have to be anti-racist. Could you unpack that a little bit? What does that mean exactly? You know, a lot of times we are in positions where we tolerate certain things. And I and I can even say that for myself in regards to, like, I, I'm a heterosexual cisgendered woman, right? So there have been times where I've had friends, you know, say homophobic things, use trans, transphobic slurs and whatnot. And, you know, you just kind of, like, sit there and you're, like, uncomfortable with it. And you know that you're not homophobic or transphobic, but you don't say anything, right? And something that, you know, I had to let my friends, my white friends especially, know is that, like, 
silence also speaks volumes. You know what I'm saying? If you're not actively voicing your pain and saying, hey, that's fucked up, then you're subconsciously agreeing with it, right? You're not correcting that behavior. And, you know, I think that's why it's important for us to push this rhetoric because, you know, a lot of times, you know, I have well-intentioned friends who are like, you know, I'm not racist. You know, I believe in this, that, and third, right? And I do. I know that they do. I know in my heart of hearts that they're not racist. They believe that I have rights. They believe, you know, I, I shouldn't be targeted just because of how I look and all this other stuff. However, you are still sitting at Thanksgiving dinner with your grandpappy who is still referring to black folks as colored, Negroes, niggers, all this other stuff, you know? Um, and you're not saying anything. And I get that there's a dynamic there of like, you know, the whole family hierarchy type thing, but I'm calling bullshit because I have that expectation for my white friends who I consider as allies and granted we're not friends if you're not an ally, you know, I need to, I need to do the same thing, right? I need to practice what I preach. And so the same way, you know, someone might drop the R word around me, I'm going to be like, bro, no, like, that's not cool. Someone dropping an F-bomb, bro, no. <laughs> like, that, that's what we're not going to do. And if you want to continue to do that, that's your choice. But I'm going to cut off your access to me because there are plenty of people that I care about that identify with, you know, this certain identity. And I just can't, I can't have that. And so, yeah, it's, it's not enough to just stand by. It's not enough to just, you know, repost or, or you know, retweet or whatever. And I think, you know, even that comes on a spectrum because there's there's space for everyone, right? And, and I say this when I'm, like, talking within my community. We need the people on the front lines. We need people who are educators. We need people who are, you know, behind the scenes doing logistics. Like, there's a, a place for everyone. Not everyone is meant to be on the front lines. Not everyone is meant to be a public speaker, right? Some people need to work in policy, do the resharing, reposting, and that's it. Totally fine. I get that, right? Um, but there's a difference between, you know, knowing your role and performing your role's responsibilities versus I'm being comfortable and complacent, so I'm just not going to say anything. And And it's hard to figure out what that difference is, but you just know. You know, I don't, I don't really know if, you know, I, that makes sense, but you know, when someone's just like, I'm just trying to keep the peace versus I know being on the front lines, like I'm not trying to like be in a protest and possibly get a rubber, rubber bullet to the eye and all that. I'm just, that's not me. But what I am going to do is I'm going to have these conversations with my people, right? Or I'm an educator, so I'm going to make sure that during you know, not just during Black History Month, but I'm able to incorporate diversity and inclusion into almost every lecture that I have or lesson plan because that's something that's important to me, right? Yeah, I completely agree. And and the theme of this podcast is trying to envision where we're going and how we can get there. And I think what you're saying is exactly in line with that, is that we all have a place in that and we can't just step by and, and ride the train there. We all have to actively be engaging and working for that. Because as I said before, we all know somebody who is on the other side of the spectrum who we need to bring over. We need to explain this to them thoroughly, you know, and it's not something that you can just go and have a Facebook argument over. Like this is, 
this, these things take time and it takes patience and sharing a post on Instagram probably isn't going to change that many people's minds. In fact, it might even divide people more. But I want to backtrack a little bit. You were talking about defund the police and the Black Lives Matter movement. Could you explain a little bit behind the movement and how it works, um, what they're fighting for? I'm in no way <laughs> like the expert, right? Um, I'm just going to be speaking off of, you know, what I know. And I'm in no way speaking for all Black people, okay? Let me just go ahead and make that disclaimer, too, just in case, you know? Um, <laughs> I also kind of sit in this place where I'm like, I see why defund the police is um, a controversial, like, statement to make. Not as controversial as abolish the police. And I can be honest in saying I'm not quite there yet. I understand, like, the the concept of abolishing the police, but I, I do have my worries. But right now, I'm definitely hashtag defund the police. And so we need to defund our police department and, and reallocate the funds that we would use for police officers to spend on gear, weapons, whatever else they spend their money on and reroute it to go to social workers, to go to mental health counselors, to go to victim advocates, to go to homelessness and, and you know, hungriness, like organizations and things like that to help further develop communities, right? To me, there's no reason the police should be called during like someone having a, a mental health episode or some sort of mental health issue breakdown, however you want to describe it, because what are they supposed to do? They're, they're not trained to, to actively sit down with someone and walk through why they are feeling this way, why they are exhibiting behaviors in this way. But you, you know who, who can come out? Social workers. You know who can come out? Behavioral therapists, mental health counselors. And everybody's like, well, well they just work from like nine to five and blah, 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 blah. Okay, yeah, that's true. But you know, if they got more money, they could create positions, like on-call positions, when I was watching the Netflix documentary about the little boy from California killed by his mother and his stepfather, a big chunk of the documentary talked about how a lot of people felt like the social workers failed. It is a sad story, and, like, I can see where folks are coming from. They might have a caseload of, like, 250 to, to 400, like, people. Something's bound to fall through the cracks. And if we have the funds to put back into that system, we will be able to hire more people so that there could be a more like touch-based, one-on-one sort of approach and social workers aren't spread thin, right? You think about using these funds that you would give to the police to fund Planned Parenthood, to fund local Black organizations, to fund the YMCA and all these other things. I can confidently say that I, I, I believe in defund the police because I do think that, like, police need resources, sure, but they, they don't need all these resources, right? Like, we can't just give them all the money and then not make it equitable for, for the rest of the organizations that are serving the people the same way. But then when you move over into abolishment, it's like, you know, can you really reform something that was created to catch you? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the police originally started off as slave patrols. It was reformed and then reformed and all this other stuff. And at the end of the day, black and brown bo bodies, and I can only speak for black bodies at this point, black bodies are still being disproportionately affected by the police. 
well, why am I going to feel so comfortable calling the police when y'all were not built for me? Like, this was not a system that was built to protect me at all. So why should I feel protected? And there's no amount of, of reform that can fix that. Just look at everything that's going on with Breonna Taylor. Reform is not going to fix that, okay? We do need more than defunding. Unfortunately, the, the piece that worries me about ab abolishment is, okay, so if we abolish the police, what happens to Black folks who are victims of sexual violence, who are victims of domestic violence, who are victims of whatever type of violence, right? Who are we supposed to call? The flip side to that is Black folks are disproportionately reporting crimes that happen against them anyway, um, especially when it comes to domestic violence and sexual assault. So this is probably something that's already getting swept under the rug. The other argument is if we put more funding into these other programs within the community, we have a higher likelihood of developing a society that realizes that these things are wrong or 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 reckons with okay this is this is a behavior that needs to be rehabilitated and not just punished right and i think that goes to a larger societal question of you know what does justice look like is justice truly rehabilitation or is justice just punishment and i think that a lot of us sit in that fine line especially until something happens to us to us right like we're all for rehabilitation until you run up on me, steal all my money, break into my house, you need to go to prison. Something that you said in the beginning was having social workers or behavioral um, psychologists sort of on duty. Something I related that back to is our work that we've done in housing. We were sort of on call. We were expected to be these professionals who react to all these situations and you know we were trained not to always resort to the police that that was sort of one of the later things that we were going to do do you think that that model could work for how we're envisioning the defund the police movement playing out should we be looking to like housing organizations and how they run is that a feasible model for our society i think at the core it is i think a lot of things and, you know, you know this because we worked for housing together, but a lot of things are so much better in theory than they are in application, right? We won't know until we try. You know, one of the bigger things, and that's why I pushed this so much when it came to, like, student staff training and things like that, is, like, listen, we need to, to have a multicultural approach to what our response looks like for certain things that happen, you know, after hours, right? We can't just expect every student staff member that we have to feel comfortable calling the police during any situation because there were, you know, times students of color called the police and, and they were just kind of disregarded when the police got there or, you know, they thought that, you know, they were the ones that were involved in the incident and they weren't actually a part of housing when they were. And so I think there are pros and cons to this, right? I think that in our sense, and I'll speak on the professional level as a community director, I believe that, you know, it's important for us to make sure that we know every resource that is available to students on campus and honestly off campus for us to make the best referral for the student rather than just, 
you know, calling the police. Now, sometimes it is better for us to call the police because some of them have relationships with the students that we're coming into contact with. There is a police officer at our institution who was once an RA. They have more of a student affairs like background to things. And I've noticed that even at my previous institution, police officers who have students affair or human related field kind of like perspective on a lot of things tend to, to, to work a lot better with students, right? Um, who find themselves to be in these sticky situations or in need of, you know, counseling on call, or they might need to be transported to a behavioral unit at a hospital. They're more inclined to actually, you know, resonate with the student and be able to help them more versus, you know, just maybe an officer who went through the force and then worked with, you know, their, their city's department for X amount of years and then wind up getting taken over to the university, right? You can tell in the way that they interact with students and in the way that they interact with staff that there's a big difference there. And so I think it's just, I think it's worth a try, you know? We've been a country for how long now and still don't have it together, so I say, why not? Things are shifting here and... and and these these movements are not letting people just stay ignorant anymore you know if you're going to choose to be ignorant then then that's a problem our education system sort of breeds this idea that we already live in a post-racial society that with martin luther king jr i have a dream the end of the civil rights movement in the 1960s and that's largely what our education says and so now is the time when we need to start waking people up you know and saying the civil rights movement is now and teaching people how the things that are happening today are very much connected to everything that's been happening throughout all of American society. And so I want to, to try to, to talk about like what a utopia would look like. I know it's hard to think about a post-racial society, but um, can you try to put yourself in the headspace of where you don't have to think about these things anymore. Like, what does that free up for you? How, how does life change after that? You know, Blackness is not a monolith. It exists on a spectrum. We do have a lot of shared experiences, right? And the fact is, you know, if I go the entire day without anything happening, I'm anxious because I know the next day I'm going to wake up to some fuck shit, right? I'm going to wake up to either someone else was killed for no fucking reason, or there's something happening in my personal life, or I'm going to experience a microaggression at work. Like, I don't want to have to do that. Some days I'm optimistic, some days I'm pessimistic, but every day I'm realist, right? I'm not going to lie. It's very hard for me to, to reimagine a society without racism because racism is the glue that holds every other ism together, right? Um, and it's so interwoven between every single thing that we interact with on a daily basis. The day that we dismantle racism is is the day that we dismantle this entire shit, like this entire system, the entire structure, everything that we once thought were, you know, values of America and the United States. And, and however, we are like, we are burning all that shit down, right? Um, there's a book called Why I Stopped Talking to White People About Race. Haven't read it yet. It's on my list. But I imagine it goes a little something like this. It's not my responsibility anymore. The white people who want to talk to me and who want to be allies and all this other stuff, there are a couple more levels you don't have to hit before you get to me. 
Okay, we're we going to be having some real conversations, right? And I'm going to be expecting a lot of you as a white ally because being an ally, it's, it's not a noun, it's a verb. For me, my focus is more so on furthering the Black community because even if we were to not have racism anymore, there are still issues within our own community. There's still homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, right? And so that's where I'm at, and that's the lens that kind of, like, I have when it comes to racism. When, when there's a cancer, right, and it starts spreading to all these different body parts, and it starts, you know, first you start just managing the symptoms, right? Um, you start managing, you know, the physical stuff that's happening that you can see on the outside. But until you get a good look on the inside, that's when you realize it spreads to all these different organs, right? And so right now... You know, I'm done trying to attack the cancer, like where it started, the organ that it started at. I, I'm trying to, to prevent it from spreading even even more. And, and that's just kind of where I'm at with the whole, like, eradication of racism talk. The biggest thing that stood out to me was the idea of, like, not seeing color and how that's not the goal here. That's not what it means to live in a post-racial society, but instead embracing color and embracing differences and embracing diversity, but not just embracing diversity, but really listening to these life stories that are coming that are tagged along with these identities, you know, because identities shape how our life plays out, how we wake up every day, how we view ourselves, how we view ourselves in the world. I want that to be clear to the listeners. I think we've done a pretty good job of sort of envisioning as much as we can, what, what a post-racial society means, you know, and working out some of these conversations that need to be had. And then also, if you have any book recommendations or reading recommendations for the listener, if you could share them. Um, so first of all, thank you both for having me. I'm super excited, super proud of the work that you're doing. I love seeing why people have these conversations. Because <laughs> again, like I said, it's super important. Y'all know that. With that being said, some of the book recommendations that I have, oh gosh, I have plenty. Unapologetic is literally one of my favorite books. Um, Unapologetic is a Black, queer, and feminist uh, mandate for our movement. It's written by Charlene Carruthers. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. She is awesome. Um, having a Black, queer, and feminist lens on what activism should look like, bruh. Chef's Kiss, probably one of the most invigorating reads that I've I've had in the past year. Hood Feminism is also a really good book. Talks a little bit more um, about, you know, the racism piece within feminism and, and what that looks like for different types of Black women. And, I mean, anything by Bell Hooks or Angela Davis, to be completely honest. I'm also going to recommend some YouTubers, Jewel V. She's on YouTube. She talks a lot about government and Black politics and just the Black diaspora, as well as for Harriet. These two women are absolutely amazing. I love listening to them. I feel so empowered when I listen to them. So if you ever need, you know, help trying to understand some things, they got you. And then if you want a book just to decompress, you know, a little bit, I would read Children of Blood and Bone. Um, which I'm finally wrapping up myself. I just got to this really good part that I was like, ooh, like this is this is good. But Children of Blood and Bone is by uh, uh, Tomi Adeyemi. Probably mispronounced that because of my colonized tongue, but we're we going to work it out. 
Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I want to remind the listener, we will link uh, the videos that you mentioned and uh, some of the books down below in the description. But again, thank you so much for joining us. I think the conversation has definitely been a step in the right direction of imagining a better world. So thank you for joining us today. Utopia is a lemon jerky production produced by Joshua McLean and Caleb Chrisley. The podcast is edited by Joshua McLean. The spoken word was written by Deborah Osegid and Caleb Chrisley and performed by Asia S. Evans. The jingle was composed by LJ Garcia.